With Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot, you can give your lawn or garden beds a pop of color and protection. Right now, get a special buy on Scott's Earth Grow Mulch, five bags for just $10. Help your soil retain moisture longer with color that lasts up to 12 months. Shop Memorial Day savings for a special buy on Scott's Earth Grow Mulch. Five bags for just $10 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hi, everybody. My name is Chris Gethard. Welcome to Earwolf Presents. I'm the host of a show called Beautiful Anonymous here on Earwolf, but today I'm bringing you something new from our friends at Stitcher. The talented documentary team at Witness Docs have plenty of new audio documentary series out this summer. Today, I'd love to share with you the latest series from Unfinished. It's called Ernie's Secret. Unfinished is an investigative anthology podcast series digging into America's unfinished business. Now in its third series, Unfinished explores dual loyalties and hidden histories via the story of Ernest Withers, one of the most important photographers of the 20th century, who is both a civil rights movement photographer and an FBI informant. You will have a lot of feelings about this fascinating, complicated story about a man whose photographs catapulted the civil rights movement to a nation's attention but who also had a secret relationship with the FBI. In this episode, you'll hear Ernest Withers shot timeless photos covering the civil rights movement, Dr. King on, on an integrated bus in Montgomery, Alabama, Emmett Till's uncle pointing an accusing finger, striking garbage men in Memphis wearing I Am A Man placards. His loyalty and dedication earned him the trust of, of movement leaders like King, Young, Lawson. But what if that trust was misplaced? What if Ernest was leading a double life? Earwolf Presents will bring you more documentaries. In the meantime, here's Unfinished Ernie's Secret. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Little Rock, Arkansas, and the first phase of the trouble. The white population are determined to prevent colored students from going to the school their own children attend. On the day nine black students were escorted by the National Guard into an all-white high school in Little Rock, Arkansas, Ernest Withers was the one who shot the photo. The jury has just come back and has returned a verdict of not guilty. When two white men were acquitted of the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in Sumner, Mississippi, it was Ernest who got the picture. The year-old protest against city buses is officially called off. And Ernest was there, his camera shutter clicking, when Dr. Martin Luther King rode the first desegregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama. The Negro citizens of Montgomery are urged to return to the buses tomorrow morning on a non-segregated basis. Ernest Withers was a legendary photographer. He took over a million photos before his death in 2007. Jackie Robinson, Aretha Franklin, Elvis, even President Richard Nixon. Ernest photographed all of them. 
But it was his photos of the civil rights movement that are his most stunning, his most enduring images. Ernest didn't just capture history. Ernest helped create it. Without a picture, we had no movement. Andrew Young was an early leader in the civil rights movement, part of Martin Luther King Jr.'s inner circle. Anytime we were sitting around talking, he was in there taking pictures. Martin appreciated him for what his pictures were doing to help publicize what we were doing. Young says, if you want to know what the fight for civil rights felt like, if you want to know what it looked like, just look at Ernest Withers' photographs. The pictures that Ernest took forced the country to look directly at things that it couldn't, or in many cases didn't want, to see. It's clear that Dr. King and the other civil rights leaders admired Ernest's loyalty, his dedication, his persistence. The most important thing about doing anything is loyalty. Loyalty. It mattered to Ernest. He talked about it in an interview before his death. Whatever people expect of you and whatever you commit to do, do it. You know, I wasn't a hard hustler, but I had to, had to have a real sense of being trusted and respected for my word being my bond. To many, he was just Ernie. And when he called looking for information, King and the other leaders always answered because they trusted him. But what if that trust was misplaced? As it turned out, there was a lot that Dr. King and his fellow civil rights activists didn't know about Ernest and about all of those photos that he was taking. I'm Wesley Lowry, and this season on Unfinished, Ernie's Secret, a story of dueling loyalties and hidden histories, and one man caught in the middle. Who and what was Ernest Withers loyal to? And what exactly was he hiding? The answers, as are so often the case, are more complicated than anyone might have imagined. Ernest was a hero. And I don't know a hero who doesn't have flaws. I see him purely as a traitor. We didn't even have the right to vote. So who are we to tell the FBI what to do? I knew Ernie wasn't making any money. But I didn't know that he would stoop to undercut the movement. Yes, he did great pictures, but without Ernest Withers, we would not have had a lot of the suffering that we had. Surviving as a man, as a photographer, I will say to you, was more important to Ernest Withers than any kind of disloyalty notions to black people. There's a photograph I keep on the wall of my home office, right behind my desk. The first time I saw the image, I knew I needed to buy a print. In the center of the photo, there's a young black protester. He's mid-chant, mouth wide open, his eyes squinting tight. In his arms, he carries a white poster board, and in thick black letters are the words, I am a man. The am is underlined for emphasis. The photo is from Ferguson, Missouri back in August 2014, after a white police officer shot and killed 18-year-old Michael Brown. Hundreds and then thousands of people had taken to the streets to show their anger, 
to demand justice. I arrived in Ferguson two days after Brown was killed on assignment as a reporter for the Washington Post. And I've spent the year since, which is most of my career, writing about race, justice, and policing in America. So when I look up at the photo on my wall, I see the modern fight for racial justice, the plea, the demand, not just from that protester, but from all of them, that our nation recognize their humanity. But I also see the long history of the civil rights fight. Because the sign the protester is holding, the I am a man slogan, it's a callback to the civil rights era. Actually, it's a callback to a particular photo from one particular protest. Several thousand Negro demonstrators are participating in this largest civil rights demonstration ever in Memphis, Tennessee. Many of the demonstrators are carrying the sign, I am a man. They stretch out for several blocks. It's March 1968 and protesters are gathering. Weeks earlier, the city's black sanitation workers had walked off the job. They complained of horrible working conditions, abuse, racism, and neglect that had led to the deaths of two of their own. It is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. Dr. King supported the strike, traveling to Memphis to join the striking workers, people like James Douglas. The signs that we were carrying said that I am a man, that we was gonna demand to have the same dignity and the same courtesy any other citizen of Memphis has. This is the most iconic. Hmm. This is what he's noted for globally. Mm-hmm. That image is used. We get a request for that image from every part of the world. Ernest's daughter, Rosalind Withers, is showing me around the museum she founded after her father's death. It's on Beale Street, right in the heart of Memphis. A small selection of his photos, hung in simple black frames, line the walls. It's civil rights on this wall. Of all of his photographs, the most popular is one that Ernest took during that sanitation worker strike. It shows demonstrators lined across the street, holding up signs. It's the original I Am A Man photograph. It's one of the first pictures you see hanging in the gallery. It's making a statement. And when you think about, why do you have to wear a sign to say that? To say that I am a man. Yes. Why would you need to do that? You have to have a sign to say that I am a man, but if you see it in this spectrum, it's in multitude. Why is this group having to make that statement? As the protesters stretched across the street holding their I am a man signs, Ernest snapped a photo with his twin reflex camera. The fact that he had a tool that exposed the injustice and he put it in front of the media the way he did, gave them life (laughs) or let Mm. them keep their lives. Because a lot of times life was taken and things were covered up and buried and none of this was known. But with a photo and a photo that could go out, then everyone would know what happened. Exactly. But here in Memphis, Ernest wasn't just known as a civil rights photographer. He was the city's family photographer. He took my baby pictures. Uh, Most of my uh, uh, infant pictures were taken by by Ernest. Bill Atkins was a young activist in Memphis, and Ernest was a close family friend. 
I grew up with Ernest coming in, sitting at our table, eating, dining with us. We wanted one of the first families to have a color TV, and that made us popular. And people used to come over, you know, to watch color TV. So we maybe 15, 20 people in our living room at one time watching the Ed Sullivan show on a Sunday night, you know, just because we had color TV. And Ernest was, was always there. He was just that close. Birthdays, graduations, weddings, proms. Ernest got to know everybody in Black Memphis. And he wasn't just taking pictures. He was making personal connections. The first time I met Ernest was in the living room in this house. He came and he took a family portrait. He was just like a father to me. Just like a father to me. He literally chronicled my history from the time I was born up till, I guess, my years in the movement. Every time I go to a movement activity, he'd be there. Every time we had a church rally or something, he'd be there. So he heard everything. He saw everything. He knew everything. But as the civil rights struggle grew, Ernest took on a steady flow of assignments from Black newspapers. The Black editors realized that this was their story, their movement, and so they needed to be on it. Ernest became their go-to photographer. Here's an example. In 1955, he traveled to Mississippi to cover the trial of the two white men accused of murdering Emmett Till. Till was just 14 years old when he was savagely beaten, shot, and had his body dumped in the Tallahatchie River after allegedly offending a white woman. The judge banned journalists from taking any pictures, a kind of visual gag order. But still, Ernest was in the courtroom when Till's great-uncle, Mose Wright, took the stand. It was a terrific tension in the courtroom at that time. James L. Hicks was another black journalist who covered the trial. Years later, in an oral history, he talked about what happened when the prosecution asked Mose if he could identify the men who had forced Till out of the house. Uh, everybody called him Uncle Mose. They said, Uncle Mose, can you identify the people that came to you that night? And he looked around, and there was a tension. And he says, in his broken language, Dahi. Mose Wright rose from his seat. He extended his arm, and he pointed at the two white defendants. It was a stunning sight. A black man in the South directly accusing two white men of murder. The judge, he was pounding on his gavel saying, order, order like that, because at the peak of the trial, it came down to the identifying of these people. Anything could happen. And just at that moment, with Mose Wright's arm still suspended in the air, Ernest defied the judge's order. He lifted his camera and he snapped a photo. Nobody else were taking pictures inside of the Emmett Till trial at Sumner, Mississippi, but myself. The photo is a little blurry, but its message was clear. When it ran in newspapers across the country, it helped galvanize the civil rights movement. Here's civil rights leader Andrew Young again. If Ernest Withers had not taken those pictures of Emmett Till in Mississippi, we might not have had a boycott in Montgomery in 1955. I want to take a moment to sit with what Andrew Young just said. Emmett Till's murder and the eventual acquittal of the men who killed him is widely understood as the spark from which the entire civil rights movement sprung. 
and photographs, first of Till's battered body, and then from inside the courtroom. Those were the primary way that the story spread across the country. What Andrew Young is saying is that without Ernest's work, there may have been no civil rights movement. About two months after the trial, Rosa Parks, an activist in Montgomery, Alabama, refused to give up her seat on a segregated bus. That launched a year-long bus boycott, one of the civil rights movement's first major campaigns. Parks would later say that Till's death was part of the inspiration for her protest. When Alabama was forced to finally integrate its buses in 1956, Ernest Withers was there to photograph the victory ride. In one photo, he captured Martin Luther King sitting beside his close friend and fellow activist Ralph Abernathy. Here's Ernest discussing the photo with an audience in 2004. This is a young Martin Luther King the same day at the end of the first ride, very proud when the bus ended up downtown in Montgomery. It's a black and white photo, and King and Abernathy are sitting together in one of the bus's first rows, wearing jackets and ties. They're in front of the white riders. There's even a white guy standing in the back. An image like this, it would have been unthinkable even days earlier. There was a man that stood over me while I was making that picture of Martin Luther King, a very tall white man. He said, boy, you better be damn glad you didn't take my picture. All of this was dangerous work for a black photographer. In a 1995 interview, Ernest described how he often became a target. Oh, I felt at risk everywhere I had gone. I felt somewhat at risk. One, anytime you were using a camera, you were always a target of people that didn't want to be photographed. And of course, uh, in Little Rock, I remember as we walked along the side, jeering crowd of white people, where I just happened to look up and there was a woman really getting her mouth ready to, to spit on me. It took courage for him to do what he did. That's Roz Withers again, Ernest's daughter. And that's why he had a relationship with, with Martin King, because Martin recognized that if, if it's exposed, then that gives them that edge of mm. awareness to take the, or to make the next step. My brother refers to my father as being the Google, <laughs> <laughs> the Google of his time, you know, making people aware of things, of educating them. Those relationships between Ernest and King and the other civil rights leaders, they became more important over time, more intimate over the years. Ernest was the kind of guy that when he'd come to see you, he'd bring his latest pictures and he'd lay them out. Some of them he would give to us to use in our magazines that we published, but he shared m much of his work with us. Andrew Young says that Ernest was always in the room. He had nearly unlimited access when Dr. King and his aides were in Memphis. Martin had known Withers since the Montgomery bus boycott days. They were friends. He was a regular at their planning meetings, present in moments of calm and quiet. This Martin King in 307, 1966, in the Lorraine Hotel at Memphis, Tennessee. Ernest is describing a photo he took in 1966. 
Dr. King is stretched out on his hotel bed. He's in his shirt sleeves. He's relaxing. He laid down on the bed, and if, if that was in Memphis, he was waiting on somebody to bring us a platter of catfish. Ernest was good company. He was a lot of fun. He was always telling jokes. I mean, he was like a comedian. Everybody knew him and everybody liked him. He was like family. The guy in the corner with the camera, constantly snapping photos, seeing everything, hearing everything, and taking pictures of everyone. It turns out, being a photographer may also have been the perfect cover. That's after the break. What did you know about Memphis when you first showed up? I knew about the history of the, the place a fair amount, you know, birthplace of the blues and its relationship to the Mississippi Delta and whatnot. I was kind of like a, a kid in a candy store. Reporter Mark Parasquia arrived in Memphis in 1989 to take a job at the Commercial Appeal, the city's daily paper. To the young journalist, the city seemed to have everything. The blues, history, politics, corruption... To me, it was a journalist's dream come true because, I, you know, the places I worked before, they didn't have that, those kind of experiences. Of course. Now, over the years, how did your journalism interact with Memphis's civil rights history? Well, it did a lot. Um, I think it's unavoidable. You know, they always say there are two kings in Memphis, you know, Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, and then Dr. King, you know. And so there was just no way as a journalist that you could not write about Dr. King at some time or another. And so it was just something that I got into over time. In 1997, the local news in Memphis was dominated by one story. James Earl Ray, the man convicted of assassinating Dr. King. He was trying to get out of prison. Even though he had confessed to the killing, Ray now claimed that he had been framed. His lawyers were floating all manner of pleadings before the criminal court here in Shelby County, alleging all sorts of conspiracies. But while he was working on that story, another one fell into Mark's lap. And that's when I ran across this guy, former FBI agent who'd been involved in, the, in counterintelligence and the security investigation of Dr. King. Okay, well, what I have here is, um, I guess it's, you'd call it work product of me, you know, in my chaotic way of filing information about, related to... Ernest Withers, the Ten Par corruption investigation, the spying in Memphis, just on and on and on. Dr. King. Inside Mark's office, there are boxes of files, um, 30 years of his reporting. He's a bit of a saver. You know, I'm a real pack rat. Um, I have a habit of saving everything. Mark is thumbing through a binder. He's looking for the notes from his conversations years ago with an FBI agent who he calls Jim. I'm trying to find this here down here in my... I used to type up all my notes, and so that's what I've got here in this three-ring binder is um, the notes from the interviews. Mark initially interviewed Jim while reporting on the King assassination. Much was known by then about how the FBI had spied on King throughout the civil rights movement, bugging his phones, for example. But Mark was trying to figure out if the FBI had been spying in the days leading up to his death. 
We were talking about the security detail, how they were watching King. Mark asked Jim, did the FBI bug King's motel room? Did they use electronic surveillance? And he said, absolutely not. We didn't need any of that, Jim claimed. He said the FBI had something better. What he said was, we had no need for any electronic surveillance because we had perfect informant coverage around the Lorraine, and one of them was Ernest Withers. It was a bombshell. Ernest Withers, the premier civil rights photographer in the South, a Memphis legend, a civil rights icon, accused of being an FBI informant. And I was floored by that. I was floored by that because I knew Ernest Withers, even at that time, as an icon of the movement. It was so shocking that at first, Mark didn't believe it. I said, really? Was Withers was an informant? He goes, oh yeah. The way he put it is, anybody who was important who came to town, people they considered agitators or troublemakers, he would get photos and information on. He says he was a very valuable informant. He asked him again, are you sure? And this is a quote, oh yeah. He's been an informant. And then Mark asked why. Why would Ernest Withers do this? He said, let me, let me tell you something. Ernest was in it for the money. What Jim was saying was that Ernest Withers wasn't just passing along little tidbits here and there. He was on the government payroll. It was a stunning allegation. But there was just one problem with everything Mark was hearing. He said if I ever wrote that story, he, was going, he would deny it. I mean, I wasn't going to get any help from him. Agents never give up informant information. I mean, that's like a reporter telling, revealing a confidential source. You don't do it. It's a sin. And his, he was saying it was a crime, you know, too. You, you go to jail and get a $10,000 fine. So um, he, it's kind of like in a chatty moment, he let it out and wanted me to know about it, but he wasn't going to back it up. Mark left the meeting with what felt like a major scoop, one with historical implications. But all that he had was one off-the-record source. No evidence, no documents, nothing. And so Mark didn't pursue the story further. It just seemed to me that it was a story that, you could, that couldn't be done, that I couldn't get. And it's just one of these things, like many things, another rabbit trail that you just closed the books on. And there was a lot of other work to do. You know, there are other stories, so I moved on. Those notes from Jim, the FBI agent, went into a binder that went into a box that ended up in a shed in Mark's backyard, collecting dust for the next 10 years. But even if he didn't immediately pursue the story, Mark understood its potential implications. Implications for the civil rights movement, for the activist who may have been betrayed, and for the legacy of a legendary photographer. Had Ernest Withers, the man that everybody in the black part of Memphis knew, used his camera not only for the good of the movement, but also to betray it? Next time on Unfinished Ernie's Secret. If Ernest Withers had a secret, he wasn't the only one. They don't know what the hell we're talking about. They would neither confirm nor deny that they had any records on someone named Ernest Withers. This season of Unfinished is a co-production of Stitcher and Scripps. Our senior producer is Roy Hurst. The editor is Tracy Samuelson. 
Our show is written by Ellen Weiss. Executive producers are Camille Stanley and Ellen Weiss. Our music is composed by Edward Tex Miller. Mixing is by Casey Holford. Special thanks to reporter and author Mark Parasquia for sharing documents, sources, and his years of work on this story. Mark is the author of the book, A Spy in Canaan, how the FBI used a famous photographer to infiltrate the civil rights movement. He is currently the director of the Institute for Public Service Reporting at the University of Memphis. Thanks also to the WGBH archives. We had production help from McKenna Smith and Suzanne Reber. Our FBI documents were brought to life by actor Corey Landis. Fact-checking was by Kelvin Bias. Stitcher's vice president of content is Peter Clowney. If you like the show and believe in this kind of storytelling, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. It'll help more people discover Unfinished. I'm Wesley Lowry. Thanks for listening. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at The Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear debris with the 40-volt jet fan leaf blower. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.